0: We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. It is always a privilege when we have Mark here to shepherd us in worship. Thank you, brother, for that. Um, you're Kendall's uh, son-in-law, right? Yeah. Yes, that's Kendall's son-in-law. I don't know if you knew that or not, but you can see the similarity. Yeah. Uh, and thank you, Jordan, for reading the wrong scripture tonight. Um, we're actually in 2 Timothy chapter 2, so be mindful of those church life people. They tend to change the Word of God, so... Uh, we are in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, and that's where we'll begin the first 13 verses. You got that right, brother? Um, I once heard a story about a, a man who escaped an insane asylum years ago, and he climbed up this big, tall telephone pole, and some passerbys saw, them, saw him and, and felt the need to call the fire department. And so the fire department arrives, and they try to convince this man to come down, but he absolutely refuses. And so... Uh, they then call the police. And the police then go to this man and also try to convince him to come down. And uh, the man refused to come down. So getting desperate, they did what most people do and they get religious. And they called a priest. And uh, the priest came and they're watching this priest talk to this guy and the priest is going. And then miraculously, the man climbs down. And everybody was amazed at this. And so they go up to the priest and they said, man, you, you must be some great saint with some great power, how did you convince him to come down? He goes, no, I'm no great saint. I said, if you don't come down from the pole, we're gonna cut the pole down. (laughs) Sometimes the best form of communication is direct communication. And that is the book of 2 Timothy. It is direct communication to the servants of God. You see, the apostle Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, and he's going to pass the reins on to his protege, But what comes with these reins is suffering. And so Paul is very frank in his dialogue, very frank in his letter, that being a Christian, being a servant of God, is risky business. You are at risk. You have a target on your back by virtue of simply being a Christian. And so he's going to lay out uh, a series of words and encouragements and exhortations and warnings that As this ministry goes from my hands to your hands, expect suffering. And then Paul will conclude this letter saying I have finished the race, I have completed the course, I have kept the faith. See, Paul knows uh, that he is about to die. And so there is this end game in Paul's mind that flavors the entire letter of 2 Timothy. And so he is preparing this young minister from what he has learned as an older minister, and that is, as a servant of God, there will be times of suffering. There will be times of persecution. In fact, he will say, Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Future tense verb. All who seek and desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. And the implication is the reason why We will one day, or if not already, in various situations and in various places, suffer because we seek to live godly lives. By virtue of seeking to live a godly life, suffering may follow. And so the letter is not only to Timothy for how to complete his course well, but it is a letter to all of us how we are to complete our course well, how we complete our course when suffering comes and how we also endure trials. Uh, last week, we, we learned that servants of God can suffer with confidence because God has given us ample examples to follow. There are people in our lives that we can model and learn from who've gone ahead of us, that we can model and learn from who have gone through suffering, that know what it's like, and God has put those people in our lives that we can model off of them. We also saw that God has provided divine empowerment, that when the time comes, God will, by his spirit, empower you. Paul said that I suffer according to the power of God. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit from which we get power, love, and discipline. So God has provided everything we need by his power, directed towards believers. And then we saw that there's an expectation of reward. Throughout this letter, Paul has his mind fixed on eternal glory and the reward to follow. He says there is laid up for me, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward me on that day. And not only me, but also all those who love his appearing. And so there is this expectation of reward for enduring these trials. Well, this week carries that same theme. What we're going to see today servants of God endure hardship and please God by taking on the obligation, taking on the occupation, and looking to the outcome. I've titled this lesson uh, Working Hard, Pleasing God. And so we're gonna see three things, obligation, occupation, and outcome. Paul will lay out a list of three commands for Timothy to do and to pass on. This is the obligation. Paul will then show how to carry out those commands using three illustrations. This is the occupation. And then Paul will conclude by sharing why such effort is worth it. That is the outcome. And so first thing we'll see is the obligation, there are three imperative verbs that front load this text in 2 Timothy chapter two. And they are be strong, end trust, and suffer hardship. And these imperatives function like commands. And at the end in verse seven, he'll tack on another imperative, but it's just to intensify what has already been said. And so these imperatives function like commands And in verse 1, we see Paul say, Therefore, my beloved son, which is a deliberate link back to what preceded, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, hearkening back to that divine empowerment provided to endure hardship. And so, three points I want to make about that first imperative, which is be strong. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Well, One, it is imperative, so it functions like a command. This is something that we have to take on. This is an obligation for the servant of God. Be strong. Another thing about this verb is that it's in the present tense, which means that continual and ongoing strengthening is essential to do the call of God in our lives. So it's present tense, meaning that there is a continual need For the servant of God to be strengthened to do what God has called them to do. You can't live on yesterday's manna. It's a continual, ongoing strengthening that's needed. And the third thing about this verb is that it's in the passive voice. Timothy is the subject. With passive voice verbs, the subject doesn't do the action. The subject receives the action. The action is to be strong, to be strengthened. So what this means is that Timothy doesn't have the strength to do what's called for. Timothy is the subject receiving the strength. And so what Paul is telling Timothy to do here is that he is to yield to Christ to receive the strength Christ provides. That's why he says be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And so the obligation to be strong, one, is a continual and ongoing thing. Two, it is a command. And three, we don't have what it takes. We must yield to God to receive the strength in order to do what God has called us to do. I don't know about you, but I've spent a lot of my life trying to do things God didn't call me to do and doing a lot of things that God never empowered me to do. But one thing God has called each and every single one of us to do is to rely on his power to do what he and only he can do. Whenever you're operating God's power in regard to his call on your life, you will find the greatest satisfaction. You'll find the greatest joy doing the very thing God has called you to do. And so, obligation number one is that the servant of God is to yield to the power of God. Servant of God is to yield to God to receive God's strength. Verse 2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is obligation number two, and it is the imperative to entrust. So Timothy is to entrust this body of truth that Paul mentioned in chapter 1, which is sound teaching, and it is what will follow. Timothy is commanded to entrust this body of truth to faithful men in the church so that uh, who, are, um, who are competent to teach others. So this is likely referring to elders because this is a qualification to, for elders, but it's not exclusive to that because in this verse, we see four concentric circles. We see Paul to his delegate Timothy. We see Timothy to entrust these things to future elders, and then we see these future elders to entrust it to future disciples. You've got four generations of people in Verse two, Paul, Timothy, future elders, future disciples of Christ. And so what we see here is that obligation number two is that servants of God are to entrust God's word to faithful people. There is a qualification there, faithfulness. And then obligation number three is in verse three, suffer hardship with me. Now that's an interesting word, suffer hardship with me. It's four words in English, but it's only one word in Greek. And it's one word made up of three components, a prefix plus a word plus a word. And the prefix soon means with me, or at the same time as me, plus the word kakos. I don't know if you ever read grim fairy tales, but uh, you might recall reading about the witch's cackling laugh. The witch's evil laugh. It comes from the word kakos, meaning bad or evil. So with me, or at the same time as me, evil, bad, plus the last word, pasco, meaning endure or suffer, where we get the word pascal. Uh, Have you ever heard of the pascal lamb, the suffering lamb of God? And so this word is unique, and quite literally, it means with me, bad, evil, endure, And so what Paul is calling Timothy to do here is to co-suffer with him for the word of God. That we suffer together. We go through hardship together as the body of Christ. We don't do this individually. And so not only do we need to receive divine enablement to do what God has called us to do, but we must do it together. We co-suffer together. So obligation number three The servant of God is to be willing to suffer together for the word of God. Are you? So in summary, we've got an obligation. One, to receive God's empowerment. Two, to suffer for God's word. And three, to entrust others with God's word. I used to disciple a guy. We met every week for two years. I would train him, I would teach him, I would pray for him. And uh, we really were good friends. But I began to get a little discouraged because after meeting for two years, it was as if this guy just digressed and digressed and digressed in his walk with the Lord. And it puzzled me. I was taking everything I had learned from Young Guns, everything I had learned from seminary, everything I had learned from, from church, and I was pouring into this guy. And it just looked like he was digressing. And, and you know, just to be, not to be too graphic, but you know, there were some some real issues with promiscuity, and he was enamored with uh, nightlife. And so he called me up, and I said, like, "Okay, we'll we'll walk through this together. We will go through this together, and I'll be here for you." And uh, but I began to get discouraged after about two years. <laughs> and I went to chapel one day at DTS, and one of the speakers brought up and was teaching on this verse. 2 Timothy chapter two, and he said, notice when Paul talks about entrusting God's word, these things, he qualifies those to whom we are to entrust them with. He says, he doesn't say entrust them to uh, people. He doesn't say entrust them to successful people. He doesn't say entrust God's word to talented people or good-looking people or charismatic people. No, he qualifies it. He says, entrust these things to faithful people. And then he said, entrusting God's word to unfaithful people is like being nibbled to death by ducks. (laughs) Huh? And he said, yeah, it's like being nibbled to death by ducks. They keep coming, they keep biting, they gum you to death, but they never actually take anything away. They just leave you bruised without scars. And I said, bingo. And so I I met with my buddy and I kind of basically just taught this verse to him. And I said, how do you feel? Do you feel like you've been faithful? And he said, no. And I said, and and we kind of walked through some things. And I said, you think it's fair then if we stop meeting until, you know, you begin to implement some of these things in your life? And he said, yeah, that would be fair. And so he calls me about a month later and says, hey, you know, I I would like to stop meeting again. And I said, okay, and I I kind of brought up the stuff. He says, no, I actually uh, haven't stopped that. I'm actually dating that person now. She wasn't even a believer. I said, okay, well, what about this other thing? And he said, no, I actually haven't. I actually, I'm, I'm working there now. And so I had to put a stop to discipling somebody because this person was not being faithful. And it was a hard thing to do. But God's word has commanded us to entrust these things to faithful people and to co-suffer with the faithful people and to endure hardship by the power he provides. Well, Paul will describe what that looks like using three illustrations as occupations. So what that looks like, what enduring hardship looks like, what being empowered by God looks like and what entrusting others with uh, faithful people with God's word looks like. And he'll do that using three illustrations, the soldier, the farmer, and the athlete. Now, we'll notice that emphasis is placed on the soldier in verse three. In verse three and four, the word soldier is mentioned three times, getting far more attention than all the other occupations. So Paul says in verse three, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And so this raises the question then, what is unique about a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul tells us in verse four, no soldier, quite literally it's no one soldiering, in the act of soldiering. By the way, we are all soldiers of Christ. No one soldiering in active service, so they're on duty, entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so the world, so that he may please the one who enlisted or recruited him, Christ, as a soldier. So what what we see here is that a good soldier displays undistracted devotion and duty to the one who called him. A good soldier is single-minded, undistracted, devoted to duty, to mission. And notice, Paul says a good soldier doesn't get entangled in the affairs of life. Speaking about the affairs of the world, and keep in mind that the issue is not whether the entanglement is sinful or not has nothing to do with sin. Paul says, you can be entangled by things that aren't necessarily sin. They may not necessarily be bad, but they can actually still entangle you and distract from your devotion to duty. Also, involvement in the world is not what's being criticized. We are to be involved in the world. And so we are to be involved in the world, but somehow not entangled by the world. So involvement is not what's being criticized, and whether it's sin or not, is not the issue. What is being criticized are the distractions of the world that drain our focus, they drain our resources, they drain our time, they drain our energy from duty to the commanding officer, Christ. That is what is being criticized here. And so the occupation number one is that the servant of God is to be undistracted by the affairs of the world and be devoted to duty to the commanding officer. So things like politics, Lord Jesus. Things like current events, good heaven. The lure of the world, how attractive it can be. Hobbies. Many of these things are, are all moral. They're not sinful or uh, holy. But yet they can still entangle us and distract us from our devotion to Christ And so a good soldier is an undistracted soldier devoted to the cause of Christ. The next occupation is an athlete in verse five. Paul will say, also if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Now this is in reference to the Olympic Games where athletes had to uh, compete according to the rules in order to enter the competition. Uh, But competing also involved their training leading up to the Olympics. It wasn't just competing, you know, staying in your lane during the, track, during the 100 meter dash. It was the rules leading up to it. There's a, a quote by a second century historian that talks about how the athletes that competed in Athens during the Olympic games had to swear and sacrifice to Zeus that 10 months prior to their competition, they would start training a particular way they would be devoted to their training, but also that they would stop eating certain foods and start eating certain foods. And if they didn't do that, they were no longer competing according to the rules. And so this idea of um, competing according to the rules has the idea, it means not breaking the rules on and off the field. And it really, it's often when this is taught, they usually bring up the athlete as the disciplined person that works out and, you know, Buffet my body and make it my slave kind of thing, but really what's going on here is uprightness. Give you an example. In the Olympics today, if somebody medals, they do a drug test. If that person uh, gets tested positive for a performance enhancing drug, uh, it wasn't because they took the drug the day of the race. It was because they were not competing and training according to the rules leading up to the race. And so the idea of a good athlete has to do with uprightness on and off the field, not crossing boundaries, what your private life looks like, what your public life looks like. Do they mesh in your moral ethics? And so occupation number two, the servant of God, is to exhibit a life marked by uprightness, according, living according to the rules. And the final occupation is that of a farmer in verse six. The hard-working farmer ought to be the one first to receive his share of the crops. And so the idea of a hard-working farmer is a person who puts in effort and a person who is industrious in contrast to a person who is idle and inactive. And the implication is that enduring for the word of God, suffering for the word of God, at times will just be hard, but there is payoff later. Just as the farmer works hard to sow a crop, the fruit doesn't come immediately but there is this future day where they will reap a harvest. And so the idea is putting in hard work now even though you don't see the results. There are times where it's just going to be hard and industry will be required of us. And so occupation number three is that a servant of God is industrious. So we have three occupations as illustrations for how to endure for the word of God. We have the uh, undistracted soldier, the upright athlete, and the industrious farmer. You know, I I have a a two-year-old, and she's probably running around here somewhere, but every morning and every evening, I read her this little book of questions and answers. It's It's a child's version of the Westminster Catechism. And every morning, I say, Freya, who made you? She's two, and she'll be, God. Freya, why did God make you? For his own glory. To enjoy him and to praise him. She says it backwards. I say, Freya, what else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make all things? For his own glory. Freya, uh, where does God teach us to praise and glorify him? In his word, the Bible. Freya, who wrote the Bible? Holy men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so what I'm doing is that I, am, I want to teach my daughter at a young age that her primary occupation is not what she ends up doing for a living. I want my daughter to have a passion. I want my daughter to pursue her dreams. I want my daughter to love what she does for a living. But I also want her to know that her primary occupation will not be found in what she does. Her primary occupation will be to find her satisfaction and joy in the glory of the Lord. That is her primary occupation. And if she can get her mind wrapped around her primary occupation is to find her satisfaction and joy in the Lord, she will now interject that into her secondary occupation, which is what she does for a living. And so her primary occupation is to live for God. That's our primary occupation. The, of God, the servant of God's primary occupation is to live for the glory of God. That is what we do. Now, what follows these three occupations is the outcome. So, question, what then is the outcome of a upright athlete, an undistracted soldier, and an industrious farmer? Well, the outcome of the undistracted soldier is found in verse 4b. Paul will say, the one who enlisted him Uh, He pleases the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So the outcome of your undistracted devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ brings him pleasure. That when you devote yourself to the Lord, it stirs something up in the heart of God. That he smiles upon your devotion and love for him. That your duty to God is, pleases the one who enlisted you, Christ. And so the outcome of the undistracted, devoted soldier is pleasing Christ. The outcome of the upright athlete is found in verse five. He wins the prize. Now the word prize is the word stephano, it's where we get the word Stephen, and it means crown. Paul will say later in chapter four that there's a crown laid up for me, and for all those who love the Lord's appearing. And so the outcome of the upright athlete, in a sense, is the gold medal. The one who competes according to the rules. There is a gold medal waiting for you at the finish line. And as we'll see later, this victory is founded upon and made possible by Christ himself. The victory he's achieved for us. Paul won't leave that out. He'll bring it in at the end. And the outcome of the industrious farmer is he'll be the first to receive his share of the crops. And so the outcome of the farmer's hard work of sowing will be rewarded on a future day. So I hope, I hope you're seeing the thread that's woven in between all of these that the outcome of our occupation is reward. One pleases God, one wins a prize, one receives a future reward, a crop at the end. There is reward to how you live your life. There's a study done about the soldiers on D-Day. They were wondering how come these soldiers on D-Day were so willing to charge the Omaha Beach knowing that they were likely gonna get mowed down by Nazi machine guns before they even landed. And so they're wondering why, why were these men so courageous and so brave knowing that they were likely gonna die before they even touched the sand? And then those who did make it past the beach and began to climb the cliffs, they knew they would possibly die too. And so research was done on what made these men, knowing that they were possibly going to die, what motivated them to charge into battle? And what they found was these men were willing to sacrifice their lives to please, the one who call, to please their commanding officer and to protect their fellow soldiers. You see, fighting for your country can sometimes be too big, too abstract, it's not personal, personal enough, but when you know it pleases the one who called you, you are motivated to do what he says. And every servant of God has a commanding officer the one who enlisted us, Christ the King. He's called you and put you into duty. And so, servants of God, every single one of us in here have been enlisted to the one who recruited you. So we please God, we please God, we bring pleasure to God by being undistracted, upright, and industrious servants of God. And in the end, it is rewarded. The outcome of your faith is rewarded. The next section I call Outcome 2.0. And the reason why I do that is because Paul will now move out of the realm of illustrations with the farmer, the athlete, and the soldier, and he'll give the theological basis for his appeal to Timothy to pass these things on to the congregation. And we find that this appeal is founded upon the victory of Christ and the reward of glory with Christ. So Paul says in verse eight, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. And so Paul tells Timothy, hey, you need to remember two things specifically regarding the gospel when you do this. Specifically, Christ's resurrection and Christ's kingly ancestry. And that is for a reason. Paul mentions the resurrection followed by Jesus' kingly ancestry because Paul wants to keep in mind that there is a messianic and eschatological reason for why we do what we do. It's messianic in the sense that Christ is the anointed savior of the world. It's eschatological because it has to do with last things, end things. And we'll see, he's a king and he reigns and we reign with him. Speaking of the eschaton, the last thing. So Christ died was resurrected therefore he conquered death and as heir to the throne he reigns forever you follow you follow that it's kind of profound if you think about it if Christ was to die again he wouldn't be an eternal king but because he has conquered death and is heir to the throne he now reigns forever it's amazing and this is the this victory of Christ is the theological foundation by which the servants of God benefit and Paul will say in verse nine, this is the reason why he suffers. This reason is worth suffering. But not only is it worth suffering for himself, but for others. Look what Paul says in verse nine. For which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. And there's a bit of word play here. There's a bit of irony. Quite literally, Paul is saying, I'm jailed, but the word of God is unjailed. That despite my circumstances, despite my uh, containment and confinement, the word of God is uncontained. It is unbound. It is unimprisonable. Which makes suffering worth it, knowing that anywhere you go in life, despite your circumstances, despite your suffering, despite how you look closed in and trapped, the word of God cannot be contained making suffering for the word of God worth it. That is Paul's point. Luther said, the, word of, or the body they may kill, God's truth abideth, abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Servants of God, we cannot forget that we are handling eternal things, that we are dabbling with truth that cannot be contained. Nothing can stop it. And this is what we have our hand on. This is what we've been called to serve, to endure, to suffer for. And it's worth it knowing that it cannot be stopped. Your time, your energy, your effort, your pain, your sweat, your blood, it's worth it because it cannot be stopped. It wins. There's this eschatological reward, this future look to glory that what you're doing now is worth it, Endure. Hang in there. It's worth it. Don't lose sight of that. Paul says in verse 10, he endures for coming glory, not only for the sake not only for his own sake, but for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. So Paul suffers not only for his own sake, but for those who were chosen so that they too may receive salvation and experience the reward of eternal glory. So suffering now, the reward of glory, the outcome. And Then Paul will, many scholars think 11 to 13 is an early church creed or hymn, kind of showing the theology of the early suffering church. And uh, it's basically presented in Four conditional statements. Kind of, if this happens, then this will happen. Verse 11, Paul says, it is a trustworthy statement. Now, the word statement is the word logos, meaning word, linking it back to verse 9, where Paul said, the word of God is not imprisoned. So, in other words, this trustworthy, unstoppable word of God promises a positive outcome despite hardship. And Paul will spell out the outcome using these four conditional statements in this early church creed. And there'll be two statements of encouragement and two statements of warning. Verse 11b, for if we died with him, when did we die with him? I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Our conversion and unification with Christ. We will also reign with him. Future tense, when will we reign with Christ? Revelation 3, in glory. If we endure present tense, we will reign with him. Future tense. Again, this eschatological reward. We will live with him, verse 11. But what we see there is that Paul went from past, future, back to present. The reason he did, he's saying, hey, look, God was faithful in the past, God has made you a promise in the future. So be faithful in the present. If God has been faithful in the past, you know he will be faithful in the present. Amen? That's why Israel would put up stones of remembrance wherever they went, so that whenever they looked back and when things got hard, they could see, oh yeah, God was faithful then, he'll be faithful now. Do you have stones of remembrance in your life? Do you have memories of God's faithfulness toward you? as means of encouragement when your present trials get difficult? Are you disciplined enough to implement those things into your life? Stones of remembrance that if God is faithful in the past, he will certainly be faithful in the future. Amen? Come on, church. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So, athletes win the crown, we reign with the king, and all those who love his appearing also get a crown. And then this, this pattern of conditional statements continues, but at the very end, Paul will do something. He'll, he'll shake up the pattern at the end of uh, this early church hymn. He tacks on a little part to break up the rhythm, and that is for a reason. He says, if we deny him future tense, he will also deny us future tense. If we are faithless, present tense, he remains faithful, present tense. So even in our faithlessness, Christ in the present remains faithful toward us. But then it begs the question what is meant by this idea of mutual denial mentioned in verse 12? If we deny him, he will deny us. Well, it does not mean that denying Christ makes you an unbeliever, it does not mean denying Christ makes you not have, means you don't have faith in Christ because Paul will say, even in our present faithlessness, he remains faithful to us. And that is because Christ's faithfulness to you is not contingent on your faithfulness to him. He is faithful to you regardless of your faithfulness to him. And aren't you glad for that? I am. So we may deny him in the future and he may deny us, but in the end, He is faithful even when we are faithless. So the issue is not salvation. For he, this is where Paul will break the pattern here of that, um, the pattern of that hymn, for he cannot deny himself. So remember the context here is about enduring present trials for Christ while looking for future, while looking to future reward and glory. And so I believe that this denial is not apostasy But I believe that this denial is referring to certain eschatological rewards. At least that's what the context suggests. Some, that another position that it is, you know, rejecting Christ and you never were saved and um, therefore he'll deny you before the Father. There is warrant for that interpretation, but I think in the context it makes more sense to uh, see this as denial of eschatological rewards because in your faithlessness, he is still faithful to you. So, uh, there is an outcome then to our faithlessness and then there is an outcome to our faithfulness. We may be denied certain things but we will also be rewarded certain things and so there's an outcome of, uh, for both but salvation is certain. So I'm kind of a, a Lord of the Rings nut and uh, I love the trilogy. I think I'm, I'm, I'm my third time through and um, every character... Represent every character in, in the trilogy, every character in Lord of the Rings represents a certain aspect of humanity. And no one represents faithfulness more than Sam, Frodo's companion. And that's really important because these two are set out on a journey for the, with the most coveted, the most desired, the most sought after item in all of Middle Earth. And... Everyone is looking for this one thing, but nobody can control it. Well, one well, Frodo, the ring bear, ends up getting bit by Shelob. Anyone? No, the giant evil spider from the dark. Thank you. Thank you, all three of you. And Frodo, Sam takes Frodo for dead. And so Sam removes the ring and bears the ring to continue the journey. But behold, Frodo is in debt, and so Sam returns the ring, they continue the journey, and in the book, not the movie, uh, at the end of book three, Frodo sets sail with the elves into the gray havens. Now this, it's just kind of like this picture of heaven, and it's a privilege only unique to elves, and it's given to Frodo because he bore the ring. But then a promise is made to Sam as well, that because he faithfully bore the ring, even just for a moment, he too will be rewarded for that little bit of faithfulness. And so, servants of God, we we are called to be faithful in those little moment-by-moment trials. That's usually how they occur. It's small moments of faithfulness where we are called to rise up in the power that God provides for that moment. Remember, when the trials come, it's usually just for a moment, and that moment is an opportunity for you to be faithful. And so the outcome of your faithfulness of being an undistracted, upright, industrious servant of God founded upon the victory of Christ will be rewarded in glory. So, Put it all together. We have an obligation to rely on God's power, to entrust God's word to faithful people, and to suffer hardship together. Paul, this is illustrated by three occupations. A soldier undistracted by the affairs of the world, an athlete upright in character, and a farmer industrious and hardworking. And there is an outcome because of the victory of Christ the reward of glory follows. So what? (laughs) What does it matter? And so this is my favorite part of any lesson is getting to the application. I'm that guy that's, hey, tell me what to do, all right? You convinced me, now what? What is the theological authoritative application from this text? You ready for it? All right. So eager, I can tell. Please God and plod on to glory. Plod means steady, diligent labor. So please God and plod on to glory. How? By being undistracted, upright, and an industrious servant of God. We please God and plod on to glory by being undistracted. Do you have distractions in your life that hinder your duty as an undistracted soldier of Christ? So many things flood my mind here. So many things. For me, it's historically been my hobbies. When my hobbies become roadblocks to my devotion to Christ, I know I've become entangled in it. Are you distracted by the world? Has it entangled you with what it says is important. We please God and plod on to glory by being upright. Are you seeking to live an upright life on and off the field, in the pulpit and out of the pulpit, in public and in private, at work and at home? Does your moral character line up? Trust me, I act a lot different in public than I do in private, okay? but my moral character is what's being referred to here. Are you crossing any dangerous boundaries? Are you tampering with things you know that you're about to step outside the line? Is God's word establishing your moral compass, your rightness and your wrongness? We please God and plot on to glory by being industrious, Are you putting effort into your walk with the Lord? Are you growing? Are you working hard to serve as Christ served? And are you putting effort in and for the cause of Christ? My Monday through Saturday, my nine to five, can either be a distraction or an opportunity. It can be a distraction if it's what drains all of my time, energy, resource, and focus from my devotion to God, or it can be an opportunity by which I interject and employ my undistracted, upright, industrious character, my Christ-likeness. These are opportunities and spaces for us to be undistracted. These are opportunity and spaces for us to be upright. These are opportunities and spaces for us to be industrious. That is what your Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday is. They're opportunities. Your primary occupation is to please God and plot on to glory. Your secondary occupation is an opportunity by which you interject your primary occupation. So please God and plot on to glory. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are faithful even when we are faithless. We thank you that your faithfulness to us is not contingent on our faithfulness to you, yet you have given us a wonderful opportunity to bring you pleasure. And it is not something that we do in our own ability and power, it's something that you provide to those who yield to you. And so I pray, God, that we would take on this primary occupation as servants of God, that we would yield to your power, that we would remember these things when, enduring, when endurance is required. Lord, I, I pray that you would move our hearts to seek to please you, that we'd keep glory in sight, and that we would all be servants of God that display undistracted, upright, and industrious, Christ-like characteristics. It is to your glory and in your son's name we pray, amen.